My dad almost destroyed our family, and on several occasions. His reckless drinking, gambling, and spending, and his personality created a climate of fear, uncertainty, and insecurity. There'd be nights where he'd hide his shoes, but he'd still leave the house barefoot in the middle of a blizzard, searching for a drink to tame his demons. What was worse is when he would return, think nothing about wandering up and down the street, screaming profanities, or bringing that anger into our home. He'd convince anyone to cash his checks that weren't worth the paper his signature was inked on. I remember the day like it was yesterday, sitting, waiting for my Pop-Tarts to pop, a real luxury for us. When a stranger walked into our kitchen and grabbed the four-slicer toaster my dad had surprised us with, only to find out it was bought with another bad check. At the same time, yet the same dad, sober, was the kindest man on the planet. His eyes twinkled, he cared deeply about his family, he loved my mother passionately, his kids, and saw all humans as equal, and any who were disadvantaged, he wanted to advantage. So how is it possible that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the fictional characters who battled between good and bad, was their father? My dad had a mental illness. He was manic depressive, or today they call it bipolar. His brain danced between a world of extreme highs and lows, and he self-medicated with alcohol. When my dad was in a good state, he didn't drink. Life returned to some form of normality, although the financial pressures to keep a roof on our heads to keep away the debt collectors never left the shoulders of my mother. And in a bad state, he was unbearable. I still believe my mom died of old age in her early 50s. And yet when he was first diagnosed and prescribed the drug of the day lithium, he took it for his family, but hated it because the doses then were like tranquilizing a horse. He hated them, took away all about life, sense of taste and color, but in the last 15 years of my dad's life, he found a way to wrestle his demons with better medicine and more willpower. He died having the love and forgiveness of his children and his grandchildren. So when I read a story in a national newspaper about a powerful woman who runs a well-known business coming out to talk about her bipolar disorders and in turn being the daughter of a father who battled with the same mental health, I'm not only interested in the story from my radio show and podcast, I take their story personally. And I think you will too, as mental health impacts every one of us. It is not something to be buried or swept away. It is something to be talked about. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today believes strongly in the power of people, community, and creativity. She's the CEO of Henry's, the largest independent digital imaging retailer in Canada. And under her leadership, Henry's has transformed from a traditional electronics retailer and the one that embraces what's happening today, where everybody is a content creator. Her name is Jillian Stein. She became the first Canadian CEO to announce that she had a mental illness. Few CEOs ever want to disclose a weakness for fear of the repercussions it could create with their employees, their customers, investors, their entire supply chain. But not Jillian Stein. And for that, Jillian, I welcome you to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. Jillian, you didn't just announce you had a bipolar disorder. You did so in a national newspaper and in an article that described how much this impacted your ability to live, let alone lead. One day you thought you were in an airport in Arizona, but in fact, we're in Montreal. We're going to get to that story. But before that, I just want to understand your intent. Why did you feel the need to share your health and such a personal story with the world? I want to encourage others to share their stories around mental health and to be able to seek the help that they need so that they can lead a normal and fulfilling and wonderful life, because I think that's something that we all deserve. 
I would say I think it's amazing to see how depression and anxiety disorder have become much more normalized. But I would say that the business community is still significantly behind in this regard. And as business leaders, we very rarely talk about our own personal struggles. And in general, there's still just a great deal of stigma and shame around a much broader spectrum of mental health issues. Well, you're, you're correct in saying that because CAMH, which is a Center for Addiction and Mental Health, celebrated that you came out. In fact, declared you the first CEO to announce that you had a mental illness, bipolar or otherwise. Why is that? Is it is it because leaders are afraid that it's signaling a weakness or that they could be disadvantaged by, I don't know, investors, customers, people in the supply chain? Or is it just this bravado that they feel they need to have because they're sitting uh, at the top of the mountain? It's hard to know what's going through other people's minds. I can say for myself, it was definitely a fear that people would question my decisions and that that credibility, right? In the future, will you continue to be strong? Will you continue to make good decisions? And when I look at your world and for the audience, you run Henry's and Henry's, you know, what I originally framed Henry's would be an incredible place to buy camera equipment. But under your watch, you've transformed this from this sort of transactional place that I can buy stuff to something that really fits what's happening in society today, which is everybody's becoming a content creator, whether it's podcasting or or video or lights for their home studio. To do that and to get people to buy in, they have to believe in the person at the top. Did you ever fear that as you're taking this business through such change that your credibility would be lost and you'd spend more time defending who you were as an individual versus pushing through your vision and strategy? I would say yes, but I imagine that all of us do. I think everybody who runs a business, anybody who's a leader has that self-doubt. I guess ultimately, you know, you have to go with what your instincts tell you and what you're what you trust and to me this these decisions that I've made have all seemed like they were the best most logical decisions and and this is where I would say my uh my leadership style is really important. I don't believe in command and control. I'm not a traditional leader in that sense. I'm very much somebody who likes to collaborate. I lean on my team. I always like to surround myself by people who are smarter than me. And so when we make decisions, they really are decisions that have been well thought out and have buy-in from a large group of people. We weigh the pros and cons and understand the risks. So it would be hard to say that something was you know, ultimately the buck stops with me. But I would, I would argue though, that when things are going well and you're seeing the fruits of your labor, that you're, it's wonderful that you're a leader that shares it. When it comes to closing stores or having to make course corrections, ultimately the buck does stop with the person at top. So did that impact you in any way, knowing that the spotlights would come on you at times as you were making the tough decisions to course correct and get the business back? Yeah. Sure. On the right path. It is. It does. It is scary in that sense. I though I believe strongly in vulnerable leadership. If you are, you know, you talk about in the best of times, but if you can share openly in those challenging times, then I think you build far more trust with your team. They will stick with you through good and bad. Was there any one of the audience that I identified earlier, customers, suppliers, investors, influencers, or in your case, landlords, and of course, your employees, that you were most worried about 
when that article came out and said the person that I trust with my capital, my land, my whatever they're invested in your business, was there any one audience that you were worried about? Or did you feel that the relationship you had built with all of them would survive the story? So I'm very lucky in that I work for a private company and my shareholders are all family and we all share the same values. So I had more confidence that I could do this. I think being in a public company would probably very be very different at this point. I think the audience that I was most concerned about and I'm, and will always be most concerned about is my employees. And so our employees are always our top priority. I want them to have confidence in their leadership. I want them to feel engaged at work and feel a connection with Henry's, with the brand. Um, and But I also want them to know that they have a safe environment to work in. And I believe that that includes not just a physical, the physical environment, but a psychologically safe environment. And so if I can ensure that my employees feel good, ultimately, that's better for all of us. That's better for the business. It's better for them. And you talk about, you know, it's fortunate you're in a family business. And I know this is the, you're the fourth generation, but that also comes with pressure because there's a lot of people that rely on that business. They were all on board knowing that when you would come out, because this is a personal cost to you, letting other people know, get people to openly talk about mental illness. They're saying, you know what, we're willing to accept that risk alongside you. We have a really long history of credible, strong relationships with all of our partners. And so we all talked about this, but ultimately felt that in this day and age that we wouldn't expect anybody to suddenly treat us different. I mean, it's business and ultimately people want to see consistent results. And as long as they see that, they should be happy. And to be honest, if somebody was to start treating us differently, I think we were all comfortable with that we would walk away and be okay with that. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Henry's is Canada's greatest camera store. What we do is we really try to help our customers tell their stories through technology. So it's about the experience and it's about tapping into why are you creating something? What do you want to share? How do you want to connect with people and helping you solve those problems and, and come up with the best solution possible? Today, my guest is Jillian Stein. And if you've been listening, she is just this wonderful kind of leader. I think the leader of the future that cares, has empathy, and recently let the world know that she had a bipolar disorder and did so in a national newspaper article. Jillian, in that article, you talk about when you were 18 and you were convinced you were in an airport in Arizona, but in fact, we're in Montreal. Take us back to that moment, what unfolded and how you even began to sort of compartmentalize and think through it. So I was living in Montreal at the time. It was my first year of university. I was studying at McGill and I was actually planning a trip to Arizona over reading week with a friend of mine. And in reality, we needed to figure out there was a we were going to need to take a bus from the Phoenix airport to Tucson. What I don't know, and for some some reason, I still to this day can't figure it out, is why I was at the airport in Montreal at that moment. But I was convinced that I was actually in Phoenix and that while I was there, I would take the time to find out what the bus schedule was. And they just everybody just looked at me like I had three heads. I was absolutely furious because I couldn't understand how could they not have the bus schedule to the second largest city in the state. To this day, I actually, I don't know why I was at the airport. And I, I hope if there was somebody that I was picking up that day, I apologize for leaving you stranded <laughs> years ago. I, it's very foggy, sort of all the 
what led up to it and, and what happened afterwards. It, it's almost like a dream. I've had dreams like that where I can't quite put all the pieces together. Sometimes quite frustrated by others in my dream who haven't got pieces of puzzle that I'm looking for. So it's, it's interesting. But you said in the article, which in this quote really, it frightened me. It made me think so much because I thought about my dad as well saying that your mind betrayed you, which is a scary place to be. Mm-hmm. And we don't think often of our mind as something that can betray us, that we completely lose control of. But I guess that's what happened to you. Yeah. Very scary. And what happened next? Somehow I got home. Um, I don't remember, but I got home. And at some point in there, I must have realized that something was wrong, um, clearly. And all I know is that I called my mom. I cried a lot and I called my mom. And I told her I needed help. Um, Actually, I don't even know if I even said those words. I probably just cried on the phone. And she said that she was coming. And where was she at this time? She lives in Toronto. So she had to get down to see you. And what was the time between when she said she was coming and when she arrived? Did you remember any of that time and how how time moved and how you tried to process what was going on? I believe she was there the next day. It was as quick as she could. So she flew in the next day. I was living in residence at the time. And I think that I probably just hid in my room. Like I, I don't think I was, I was scared to go out. I didn't want to interact with anybody. Um, I was scared of myself. And so I, I would have just holed up there until she came and I, I'm sure it was only a day, but it would have felt like weeks. What advice can you give to others that are listening, going through an anxiety attack or an episode like you did? Is there anything or is it ever, is it always so unique or is there something that you learn from your experiences that you think would be of value to others? I mean, I think everybody's experience is unique. So I'll always speak from, from my perspective, Uh, but I think it's always important to get help and to talk to somebody. And it doesn't matter if it's your family doctor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, a family member, a friend, whatever it may be. If you happen to uh, have an employee assistance program at work, use it. And if there's an emergency, um, and if you f- can't find help fast enough, which sadly today I know is really hard to get, go to emergency. That was something that I didn't know when I was younger and something that I think is is really good to know that you could walk into emergency. Um, and don't give up. You know yourself better than anyone else. And if something doesn't feel right, you have to trust your instincts. Today you've come out and talked about it openly. Back then as an 18-year-old, you hid. Was part of the reason you were hiding not just your fear of interaction, but how you would be judged by others? Definitely. Definitely. Um, I didn't want to be seen as, as um, I have quotes, that you air quotes, but as crazy. You know, we don't want to use, I don't like to use that word, but at that time, that would have been how I felt. And do you think society has moved on? And we're going to get into what you're doing with your foundation in, in a bit. But do you think society is at a point now where, especially with the younger generation, that instead of air quotes and using the word crazy, people would be more willing to open up their arms and say, how can I help? How can I maybe take you to an emergency or or just be with you and let you know that what you're going through? It might be, seem abnormal, but to you, it's it's actually the normality of your brain at that moment. I believe so. I think we've come a really, really long way. And 
I think in our personal lives with friends and family, I think we're good at that. Um, where I talk about the stigma, I think still, how does it impact you at work? Um, and, and I think that's still somewhere where we have, we have a long ways to go in terms of, of feeling con- comfortable and confident that your, um, that your job and your career won't be impacted by this. Let's continue to talk about her approach to mental illness. Julian, you grew up, as I did, with a father who was bipolar. What was that like for you? Well, so, so Tony, I heard your, your opening um, when you talked about your experience, and that's, it's heart-wrenching. I'm very fortunate in that my experience was very different. So I didn't actually know that my father was depressed or had bipolar disorder until I was in my late teens, just before I was diagnosed myself. And overall, I'd say we had a very happy family, and my father was a very loving and affectionate uh, dad. Um, My mother was really key in ensuring that he got the support that he needed when he needed it. And he also worked a lot. And so he was at the office growing our business for most most of the time when I was young. So he was out of the house quite a bit. Um, so So that's my experience. And how did he deal with the roller coaster of business? Really, what bipolar is in many ways a roller coaster inside your mind. How did he find a way to manage both? Because my my dad was more in sales, and when things were good, he was you know the wind was at his back. You could do no wrong, and then he would crash. But your your, your father was responsible for a big business with lots of employees and lots of responsibility. How, how could he manage through that? So in general, I would say that his lows were much more prevalent and his highs manifested in work. When he sort of was having a, you know, at a, at a high point, he was wired, he didn't sleep and he just ran on adrenaline and he worked for 16, 18 hour days and he would do this for weeks at a time and then he would just crash, um, you know, couldn't get out the door, couldn't do anything. And... um but as I said earlier, my my mother is an incredible, strong woman. And she, you know, when he first started to have, you know, these these symptoms and started to to experience this, she was she was very direct and she said that if he didn't get help, she was gonna leave him. And luckily he listened to her. So They both happened to have a friend who was a psychiatrist who at the time was much more progressive when it came to medication uh, than other doctors were back then. And this doctor recognized that talk therapy wasn't going to help. This is a chemical imbalance. And uh, so he started on medication when he was very young or when I was very young and he was in his early 30s. And while medication's nowhere as good as what it is today, it was definitely something that really helped. And um, and then, to be honest, when he was in his late 40s, he had a heart attack, and that really changed him. Uh, because part of it was that he realized that he needed to step back from the stress, and when you take the stress out, it really helps you manage your mental health. So in some ways, that was a, a real savior for him. We come back, Jillian Stein offers some sage advice on the importance of having a network to help you improve your mental health. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? 
Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Henry CEO, Jillian Stein. We will talk about her business acumen in surviving the pandemic. But first, through your experience with your dad and your mom, and I credit my mom with so much of uh, who we are today as well in terms of having the strength to keep it going. You earned an excellent education. You've got your hand on the rudder of Henry's. And you talk about the fact that it is possible to do both, to, to live your life as you deserve to live it, to manage your mental illness, and to run a business. So I mean, where, where did you learn that confidence? And where did you start where you started going forward saying, I can deal with this. This isn't going to be a handicap to me. Well, I guess one is I saw it in my in my father. So my father is, you know, ran a successful business. I'm fourth generation, but I really credit the success of the business to him. And he built this Canadian icon and he's got an extremely wonderful community of close friends and colleagues. And and so he did it. And in my family, you know, there was no reason that you couldn't do it. How important is it to have a family that doesn't try to disguise it or hide from it or feel ashamed for it, but in fact embraces it. It's just part of the matters that family have to deal with. I think it's probably the most important thing because that then gives you the confidence to go out, to get help, to talk to people. But I would also say that if you don't have a family that is supportive, you can still go and build that network. So for me, I've been very, very deliberate over my lifetime and especially when I took over as CEO about building a network that supported me and having that network that I can rely on is everything. I mean, obviously, in addition to the fact that I'm very attuned to my mental health and I, you know, make a point of always checking the boxes and, you know, getting the sleep that I need and all of those things, calling my doctor, changing my medication, things like that. Those are all things that I can, that I do myself, but that network is, is really key. You're very involved in Young Presence Organization, aren't you? I am. Yeah. And the forum, I mean, I was involved with YPO for years. In fact, I was one of the founders of the Toronto chapter. And I have to believe that if you're in the right forum, that has to be so important. And for the audience that's listening, a forum is a group of CEOs that get together under a blanket of absolute trust. They share uh, everything from what's going well in their life to what's falling apart in their life and everything in between. But again, under a blanket of trust without judgment and just the fact that they've got people that are there to help. How supportive have they been? about both the transformation you've done with Henry's and the fact that you've had to battle this mental illness. Extremely, exceptionally supportive. They're everything to me. Uh, YPO in, in, in and of itself provides me with just such a safe place where I can be vulnerable. But the wonderful thing is that you, when you're vulnerable, you it's a gift to, to others, but it's also a gift to yourself because then you see others being vulnerable and you realize you're, you're not different. You may have different issues, but we all have issues. That in and of itself is extremely powerful. One of the things that I really took away from your article, it's almost hidden, but to me it just screamed out, was when Elon Musk came out saying he might be bipolar. And you, in fact, took some exception to the statement that he was trying to glorify an illness. Tell us about 
why you feel this way. There was a little bit out of context. I can't speak to Elon Musk's experience, and I would give him the same advice that I give anyone. What there is, if you if you search on the internet about bipolar disorder, you will come across some that call it the CEO's disease. And that's the part that I find offensive, truthfully, or it, it's, it's- Sensationalized, offensive Hollywood, right? Yeah. Uh, from my perspective, bipolar disorder requires medical and psychological help. And when you have bipolar disorder, you don't choose when you have a high and when you have a low. You know, I can see how obviously the mindset of an entrepreneur or CEO requires an incredible balance of risk taking and risk management and the empathy that's required to to build a successful business and strong relationships, but that should never be confused with bipolar disorder. Jillian, the pandemic has taken many businesses down and others are on life support. And I would argue the help and, and the government has leaned in has been much more supporting big business than small business. And I don't mean to pretend yours is small, but you are a family business. Add to that the camera space where now everybody's mobile phone has a wonderful camera on it. Those were massive forces of change that you had to battle as you took this over. So tell us a little bit about what you've done to keep that legacy of your great grandfather alive. Yeah, I love challenge. So this is surprisingly fun for me. Um, There's two parts, obviously, as you touched on the retail piece and the category that we're in. And so on the retail front, I would say, you know, we've been doing this now for 112 years and I see retail as an evolution. So while from the outside, it may look like all doom and gloom and everything has just sort of, you know, retail is falling apart. It's no different in my mind from when, you know, department stores first came on the scene and, you know, the question of whether a specialty retailer served a place, same with big box, you know, everybody was convinced when Walmart entered Canada that all of a sudden every small independent retailer would collapse, but it doesn't. Um, You got to find your niche. And I think we have a very, very special place. So as a specialty retailer, I think what we offer is something very unique that you can't get anywhere else. Obviously, you know, we were we were one of the first Canadian uh, retailers to actually have a functional online e-commerce store. So we went online in 1997. Uh, it wasn't pretty, but, you know, we were there. So we always are making sure that we are at the forefront of retail. So we're continuing that evolution. We've revamped all of our stores so that they are um, much more modern and welcoming and accessible to a new and broader uh, customer base. And obviously investing heavily in digital. But again, I feel that that specialty retail has a place, uh, especially in the Canadian market. And when it comes to photography, you know, obviously, yes, the smartphone has, uh, you know, or as other people actually call it, the camera phone. When you think about just that term, clearly that's had an impact on our space. But I like to look at this as a great opportunity. There are more people who are engaged in photography, videography, and content creation than ever before. I mean, the term content creation didn't exist, you know, five years ago. This is something new and exciting. So for me, you know, the way we look at it is how do we ensure that we embrace any way that people want to create and capture and share, be device agnostic, and how do we start to develop more services that support the creators however they need to be supported? And I'd say this is no different than, you know, back in the 90s when 
there was great pressure in the photo industry at that time going from analog to digital. And most businesses were really dependent on photo finishing and therefore they really hung on to the analog market. They lost the opportunity to to jump on digital, whereas we said, you know, we don't care if you you know, want to shoot analog, great. If you want to shoot digital, fantastic. And that's really what spurred our growth in the 90s. So I see this as another opportunity. And tell me about your foundation, because I, I mean, I read the article, but I could almost see the smile on your face when you're talking about how your family has come together and launched a foundation to help support people that are suffering with mental illness in the country. So in 2020, March 2020, the timing sort of was maybe not ideal, but probably even more necessary given the timing. Uh, we launched the Henry's Foundation in an effort to support the mental health of Canadians everywhere. And to be, you know, give everybody their due credit. It's actually my sister, Amy Stein, who's the executive director of the foundation. And she's got years of fundraising and sponsorship experience behind her. And she's also deeply committed to this cause. So the foundation works with uh, a network of partners to support the improvement of mental health. We, it's a combination of fundraising and programs such as uh, the Uncaptured Moments campaign, which is uh, so hashtag Uncaptured Moments. And that's about sharing the real moments in life on social media as opposed to just, you know, the nice shiny ones. And, you know, we know social media can do great things, but it can also have a really negative impact on our mental health. And so how do we make it a little bit um, more real? My guest today is Jillian Stein, the CEO of Henry's. First Canadian CEO to announce that she had a mental illness. She also has another battle, keeping Henry's, her, the business her great-grandfather started in 1909 operating despite a pandemic and a consumer on the move from bricks to clicks. Jillian, I want to end up with just a couple of personal questions to you because as much as you say, you know, you love the challenge and you can hear it in your voice that you're, you're energized by having to rethink the moves on the chessboard. You also mentioned that the impact stress had on your dad when he had a heart attack in his 40s and that stress has on mental health. How has all of this that's happened through the pandemic and the tough decisions you had to make and how's that impacted the way you feel today and what you hope you'll feel going forward? It's been challenging for all of us, right? No question. I'd say I'm actually quite surprised at how strong I felt throughout it. The one interesting thing about the pandemic is that it has created such an incredible focus and clarity, and there's no question about priorities and that we're all working through this together. And so somehow in that, I have found that to be helpful, at least on the, on the business front. You know, you don't, when you don't have time to think about it, you just have to act. Personally, things like sleep and exercise are what feed me. Uh, spending time with my kids. I have two little kids. Uh, they give me a lot of perspective. And as trivial as this seems, my dog brings an incredible sense of calmness to our house. And she helps me forget, you know, the world outside when I need to. And as a mom, do you look at your two kids and wonder if this illness is getting passed on to them? Or is that something you just put out of the back of your mind and we'll deal with it that that was ever the case. Yeah, my kids have their have their own challenges, uh, and we're working through them. I guess I'm thankful that both my husband and I have the same approach as my parents, and that we are aware and attuned, and we just make a point of getting them the help that they need when they need it. And Jillian, my final question: Do you want to be remembered as a great entrepreneur that kept her great grandfather's business going through unprecedented forces of change, or a leader? 
who used your platform to help the 7.6 million Canadians, but one time or many times will experience a mental health crisis. Can I be remembered for both? Is that an option? (laughs) (laughs) I I think you will be, but I'm just curious as you start thinking about even your your kids talking about your grandkids one day talking about the way you must talk about your great-grandfather. What do you think you'll be known for? I don't know. It's it's new. I mean, this is all very new. I would have always said that I wanted to be remembered for my business acumen and for the success of the business and what I've built. But I've always had a, a part of me that wants to to help and to give back. So you can't go wrong with either of them. I always end my interviews with three takeaways. And the first is a story I read one time about Thomas Bata, who turned out to be the founder and creator of a Canadian company. He's a Czechoslovakian, but the largest foot company in the world. But in his early days, he was a a salesperson. He was sent to Africa to see if there was an opportunity. And he had one part of the continent. His uh, associate had the other side. And they both came back and the associate said, there's no market here. Nobody wears shoes. And Tom Bata came back and said, I've never seen an opportunity like this. Nobody wears shoes. (laughs) <laughs> and Bata became the name for the slang name for shoes in Africa. That's how successful they were there. And you remind me of that in terms of how you see opportunity and how you realize that this has changed this is dynamics. And an incredible lesson in life for anybody listening is look for the silver lining and go after it versus trying to necessarily hold on to legacy. I think the second thing that I'm going to take away is you, you really do embody, which I think is the leader of the future. It's much more being a servant. It's much more helping others get to where they want to go. It's not being afraid to rely on a team and to share decisions and, and as you say, to be vulnerable. And vulnerability in the past might be seen as a weakness, but I think you're, you're making it apparent it's an incredible strength. And I think the final thing is that you embrace change and that you, in some ways, live for it, probably because you've been in a sector that has required so many course corrections and sit so many speed bumps over time, including the camera phone. And your company used to be called Henry's Cameras. And you've, you've found a way to do it and enjoyed it and realizing that along the way, the most important people you're serving are your employees and making sure that they have a safe place. And what I love what you said, not just physically, but mentally. So for all of that and more, I am so grateful that you took the time to, uh, to share your story on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm crying. (laughs) Uh, I I hope it's tears of joy because... uh, No, I'm like, I feel very honored. Thank you. So joining me now is Andreka Masakati. She's the Senior Director of Benefits and Wellness at RBC. Uh, Welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So in the past, I've chatted with some guests that are really thinking about the future of work, the great reset, remote working, people like Steve Cadigan and Victoria Pelche. And we talk about this hybrid model. Do you think that there's an opportunity to embrace it and to really create culture and create a work environment by still having the productivity that we need as an enterprise? I think it's the future of how many of us are going to be working. It's how RBC is moving forward, decided to move forward. And it's, you know, really as a result of digging deep and understanding what the future looks like for us, what's right, not necessarily just for the business, but for balancing that with what our employees need, which, you know, we all know changed uh, significantly over the past two years. You know, we did choose hybrid at the end of the day. We realized that for us, it represents the best of both worlds. 
Uh, it was a model that it brings people together in moments that matter and in times where collaborative work and, and live work are necessary. But otherwise, it does enable our employees to work in ways that are best for them and for our clients and communities. So you've got a lot of resources. And as you said, you, you really dug deep into this. What advice can you give to business leaders, entrepreneurs, employers and employees in terms of what you learned and what might, they might take into account as they're trying to chart their way forward? It's tricky. Everyone knew what it was like to be completely in an office environment. Some knew what it was like to work completely remotely from home. Now we're looking at this mix and how, how do you make it work? For me, it boils down at the end of the day, it's the environment that you create for your employees and your future talent, right? It's what kind of supports you provide to your employees to understand this new world of work, how, how to work in it, you know, helping them to structure collaborative meetings in a virtual work environment, having leaders talk about uh, their struggles, trying to balance both to any sort of mental health or, or benefit type resources that you have to support employees as, as they're trying to adjust through all this. My guest today, the CEO of Henry's Cameras, she's struggled with bipolar disorder and she chose to come out and tell people about it. And she feels that that was the right move because leadership has got to move on from trying to be these superheroes and realize that they have the same vulnerabilities as anyone else. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's what we've been trying to encourage within RBC for the last, you know, we've started talking about mental health eight years ago. We had a campaign that we launched over a year ago. It's called Together We're Perfectly Human. And really it's a campaign about communication. You know, it really centered on three key themes or messages. One being we're all human. And I think I just heard you say that a number of times. That's just level setting stress, anxiety, mental illness, mental injury, that doesn't discriminate and it can happen to anyone. You can show vulnerability and still thrive in your career. There's no shame or judgment. You know, experiencing a mental health uh, challenge is not a sign of weakness. So that's something we've been trying to, to really convey. And then beyond that, it's we're in this together. So, you know, it's our collective responsibility to support each other, to check in with colleagues, um, friends, family, it's okay to be uncomfortable and to not be okay and to ask for what you need and your mental health matters. So those are all just key themes that we've been focusing on. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.